I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. Uh, what got you there? What got you, got you James Kerr specializes in leadership and high performance. He is the author of Legacy, the international bestseller, which analyzes the unique culture of the world's most successful sporting team, the All Blacks rugby team. The Daily Telegraph called it the modern version of Vince Lombardi's guide to coaching. In his work, Kerr addresses the transferable principles that drive exceptional outperformance. Using examples from his work with sports, the military, and business, he argues that winning teams employ the same basic ideas, a relentless focus on excellence, a commitment to a collective cause, individual autonomy, trust initiative, accountability, and candid communication, all underpinned by a culture in which leaders create leaders. If you want to learn more about leadership and high performance, then this episode is definitely for you. Hey, it's Sean, and after personally coaching CEOs, executives, and professional athletes for more than a decade, and also interviewing over 300 of the world's most successful people on this podcast, I have compiled the most important mindsets, routines, and skills you need to cultivate to skyrocket the success in your own life. Now, I've done this by creating a 19-video lecture online personal development course called You Unleashed. Now, these lectures include how to overcome limiting beliefs and fears that you have, how to develop your personal routine for high performance, and mapping out what your foundational life principles and values are. Now, this course has a proven curriculum where I will teach you everything I've learned from high achievers about how to live a more fulfilling life. Now, you can get exclusive access to this course by clicking the link below or going to whatgotyouthere.com forward slash you dash unleashed. That's whatgotyouthere.com forward slash you dash unleashed. Have you been looking for expert on-demand marketing assistance for your business? If so, then I think you're going to be interested in hearing about Marketer Hire. Now, Marketer Hire has made it easy to hire great marketers that are pre-vetted and hand-matched so you can get proven help with your business in less than a week. That's why it's trusted by big companies like Chanel, Netflix, and Puma, and also individual creators like myself. Whatever your marketing hire needs are, Marketer Hire has an expert waiting to help you with your project. It doesn't matter if you're looking to build out an entire team of marketers or just work with an expert marketer a few hours a week. Marketer Hire can handle your needs. And the best part, if you sign up using the link try.marketerhire.com forward slash WGYT, you get an automatic $500 credit to try out on your first hire. It's literally risk-free hiring and no downside with no long-term commitments and no cancellation fees. So go get your $500 credit today by going to try.marketerhire.com forward slash WGYT. James, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? Yeah, good. Nice to be here, Sean. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm very excited for this conversation. Uh, Your work, the teams you've studied, organization, leadership, culture, all those things are right up my alley. But I'd love to start and kind of understand a little bit deeper about you. And I'm wondering, do you have any routines or we can just call them non-negotiables you try to get in every single day? Yeah, great question, actually. You know, a lot of the work I do is around, you know, setting up those cultures and those sort of operating principles, I think, for for for, for teams, you know, and, and of course it applies, 
you know, to individual lives in many ways. And so, of course, I've, I've sort of done the process for myself, if you like. Um, you know, Stephen Covey said, you know, begin with the end in mind. You know, what is it you want to be? Um, uh, where, where is it you want to go? And if you know where that is, you can kind of um, uh, work backwards to understand some of those principles that might inform um, the way you behave every day. And so for me, uh, I, I want to do work that kind of lasts generations, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, largely that's written, sometimes spoken, uh, often around creating kind of cultures that will sustain within high-performance environments or organizations. So um, what that really means is that on a personal level, I need to uh, be intentional about what I'm doing and I need to be fit for purpose uh, I need to enjoy it, um, uh, and I need to be sort of planned to win. I need to to stay on top of stuff, if you like. And and so my kind of four principles, if you like, the way I try to organize my my day are, are what I kind of call my four Ps. You know, one is uh, to be physical, uh, to try to get out into the world and walk and cycle and experience nature and all of that. And I put that first. So I try to do that in the mornings. That that becomes my morning ritual. Um, second is purposeful. Have I devoted the bulk of my day to doing the work that really makes a difference to me and to others? Um, the third is planned. Am I on top of the stuff I need to be on top of? And often writing uh, and and organizing are two sides of the brain, I think. And it can be... You know, that that becomes one of, you know, in the past, I've been very, you know, I, I've shut everything else, you know, shut everything out, all of that noise to try to kind of perform on the page, if you like. Um, what I find is if I have structured time in order to do that, I at least kind of keep the tide of emails at bay, communicate, keep the ball in the air, you know, do my part of that sort of reciprocal relationship of, of juggling time and calls and so on and of course occasionally I, I let that slip but you know I do my best on that and then finally play um, and I, I focus on that a little bit I have two kids of sort of uh, 10 and 11 years old so it's a good reminder to when they kind of come home that my role changes but also I try to have that throughout my life you know that the play is a good way to learn it's uh, it's a good way to experiment um, it's a good approach to bring. So those sort of four principles, if you like, I try to organize my time, get it in the diary uh, in order to create some kind of framework for the future. Um, so so that's my that's my own particular kind of formula, I guess. Yeah, no, we, we all have to do what works well for us. And I love that 4P framework. I, it, it's simple, but, but there's so much nuance within there. I, I am wondering for you, what are the steps that even led to developing this framework? Was was this something that just early in your career you were able to distill down, or did this take years to develop? Uh, well, it's it's kind of took a while to develop. Um, I I my my background. I started my career in advertising. I was a copywriter in advertising. I I studied film uh, and communications and journalism, uh, and then I went into advertising. And advertising is the art of you know, persuasion, obviously, but it's really the art of trying to get to the essence of something, trying to boil down all of the complexity and the noise and the the um, the the alternative options and the other lives down to 
kind of a singularity or a kind of a um, you know a, a, a big idea to rule them all, if you like. And so, I think that probably contributes to the you know you talked about the simplicity with nuance. You know, I think there's simplicity, and then there's kind of I think it's been called within the advertising business kind of a radical simplicity, going right down to the the nub of it. You know what 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 it, and and that's what I try to do in my work is somehow try to to synthesize a lot of information, a lot of knowledge, simplify it down to you know bite-sized chunks that that make a difference, and then storytell and and uh, create a narrative because we learn through stories and we teach through stories and we can identify ourselves in stories, and so I think that process of evolving my thought processes, if you like, um, and uh, and finally taking a look at myself. It's kind of cobbler's shoes, isn't it? You know, the last person, you know, who gets attended to tends to be the person doing the attending. Um, so I think probably for that reason, it, it's taken uh, a long while. And, and actually, funnily enough, during um, lockdown, you know, we've been very locked down in, I live in London, um, Finding those kind of simple habits has been easier in a way uh, because they, we, you know, I found I've had more agency on my time. And so developing a kind of a way of work for me, you know, the year before lockdown, I was on a lot of planes. Uh, I was all over the place. My, my circadian rhythms were all over the place. My, you know, it wasn't necessarily an easy kind of life to manage. Uh, and lockdown has been disastrous, obviously, for many, many people and, and you know, challenging for everybody, I think. Um, but I think there's some, you know, there's a silver lining that's, that's been an, an opportunity to reevaluate, uh, to kind of reboot, if you like, and to come back to some of the stuff that really matters. And so I've definitely taken, you know, leaps and bounds over the last, you know, 12 to 18 months, I guess, in terms of, of, of rebooting and reformulating the way I want to work and how I, you know, the old cliche, the way you spend your day is the way you spend your life. Um, so it becomes those decisions, I think, those operating principles, that operating system uh, for your own high-performance environment, I guess, has been, I think that's the silver lining for these times. And, and I, I definitely have deepened that discipline, I think, recently. You mentioned cutting through the noise. We're, we're always looking for, through that for that signal through that noise. I'm wondering for you, for anyone who hasn't been great at that, because I really appreciate your work. I feel like you truly do get down to the essence and the core uh, and, and make those lessons so applicable and so easy to see. Is there anything that you've done or that you do consistently that helps you kind of just cut through a lot of that noise that so many of us deal with? Um, I think when it comes to writing, uh, it's, you know, Writing is rewriting, draft after draft after draft after draft. It's how do you keep asking the questions to cut through the easy answers? I think would be my easy answer. Um, uh, the in terms of my life, you know, like anyone, we're susceptible to distraction. We're living in an age of you know social media, you know, twenty-four hour news. Um, you know, we we carry supercomputers in our pockets, you know, the, the ability to focus on the stuff that matters, I think is one of the primary challenges that we all face now. Um, how do I do it? Probably no better than most of your listeners, you know, sometimes really well and 
you know, then I get lost in the noise. It's 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 a constant and ongoing struggle, I think, for for everybody. You know, if you take that kind of coaching mindset that that it's kind of capability minus you know distraction minus static, um, how we manage that static becomes extraordinarily important. If you take a sports person out on you know kicking for goal, taking a penalty in the World Cup. They're capable. They can kick penalties in training every time. What are the, what's the extra noise? It's it's a World Cup. Um, there's there's people shouting and screaming, the pressure and all of that. So how we manage the, those distractions, I think, is one of the the key questions of high performance, and and increasingly for all of us, one of the key questions in life. I'm not sure I've got any kind of magic bullet for it, but it's it's for me it comes down to the well the best answer i've got it's it's you know what are my core values what are my core principles what's the foundation upon which i build things and am i honoring that am i aligned with that um and and having those kind of conversations with myself in the same way as i have those conversations with a team you know are we on purpose here are we living the values out loud are we our reference points, our guide rails, are we living that or or are we, is the dissonance, is the distraction? How far away are we from that? And, you know, there's a lot of psychology that says that distress is really comes from us, uh, our being out of alignment with our core values. Um, you know, if we're acting one way, but we believe we should be another way, that causes pain and suffering. So being able to either accept that we are acting out of integrity, if you like, or choosing to be aligned. Again, I think there is a lot of peace in that, um, equilibrium in that. And so I think that's the challenge that we all face. How do we how do we come down to what really, really matters to us and try to live that honestly and with integrity and respect every day? I, th- I think we all feel that internally, right? Like when, when we're at odds with our own values, we, we know that it's, it's kind of like really being able to look deep and then live up to your values. That's going to be one of the key things you, you hit on understanding your own values, your own purpose. And I, I know in your book legacy, you, you talk about the, the rugby team, the all blacks, and they have a, a map of daily self-improvement. Uh, yeah. I'm wondering, as you're developing the, these types of things and you're really distilling down your own values uh, and your own purpose, in a systematic framework, what does that look like? Is there any advice here for someone who hasn't started to map these out before? Uh, I, th- I think there's two things I would I would say to that. Um, that the the systematic framework for me is a very simple one. It's it's um, based actually on a on an old military strategic planning um, kind of matrix, which is end ways means excuse me, you know, begin at the end, know where you want to go, have defined some sort of vision for yourself. Um, and I think that's the most com- important conversation you can have with yourself in many ways. It's certainly one of the most important conversations when a, when a coach takes over a new team or a leader takes over a new group, you know, the number one conversation is the first one. What are we going to do here together? Um, you know, what are we setting ourselves to do and why does it matter? becomes extraordinarily important. And the, the history of sport, if we take sport as an example, is there are some fantastic stories about, I don't know, Doc Rivers at the, at the Celtics shining a spotlight on where the next pennant um, is going to be put on the wall in the training gym. 
um, you know, that's the encapsulation of all that's great about inspired visionary leadership. It's like, this is it. There is a spotlight on our future. There's a vivid description about where we're going. So begin with that. Begin, Stephen Covey says, as, as I've said, you know, with the end in mind, have a clear idea of where you're going and then start to work backwards. And then it's like, well, if that's what we want to become, who do we have to be? What are our core values? You know, where are we going to focus? Now, the thing about values is that the stuff you value is what you look for. You know, if you value a corner office and a, and a brand new BMW, you know, you'll see that BMW pass you in the street. It's called the uh, uh, Bader-Meinhof effect, I think it's called. Um, you will keep seeing those cars because that's what you value. So they're really big decisions around values. And, and you know, do you value money and success or do you value family and love? Now, they might, you, you know, which one is more important for you? So really understanding and ranking those values, I think, becomes hugely important and very powerful because it's a way to kind of stick to your knitting, you know, mm-hmm. stick to the stuff that matters. So, you know, where you want to, what you want to become, who you have to be. And then the third thing is sort of tactical, you know, how are you going to behave? What are the things that you're actually going to do about it? So, you know, if you take a sports group, you know, a sports team, you might say what we want to do is we want to, you know, win the World Cup, the World Series or whatever it is. Who do we have to be? Well, maybe we have to be fitter and faster than everybody else. Maybe we need to be technically more accomplished. Maybe we need to um, master the sports science of it. Whatever those drivers are, um, so that, that's more in the realm of principles rather than values, like kind of performance pillars, if you like, but it's very much the same process. And then you go, right, okay, if we need to be fitter and faster, what does that mean about our training regime? What, is, what does that mean about our selection policy? What does that mean about the kind of experts that we have coming in? What does that mean about nutrition, et cetera, et cetera? And so you can really kind of work from the general to the specific, from visions into everyday action by a very simple kind of three-column sorting device that goes from big to kind of the, the operating principles, the operating system, down to everyday behaviors. Um, in a team environment, if you can create, if you can co-create those answers, if you can put it to the group and the wider group, you get the extra benefit of, of, of engagement and ownership and you know, there's a lovely phrase that Wayne Smith from the All Blacks uses, which is, you know, people rise to a challenge if it's their challenge. Mm. You can make it theirs. Um, if you're working with yourself, um, you're co-creating with yourself, you know, sometimes it can be useful to work with mentors or coaches or in a group situation because it, it helps you have those conversations you might not otherwise have and be challenged on them. If you're having it with yourself, at least you've got a structure that you can start to have that conversation with yourself. You can really be rigorous uh, and, and doing that. And, you know, one final part of it is don't take your first answer as your last answer. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's it, it, the, the asking why over and over again, this should be your final answer and revealing the next layer down and the next layer down, I think is the way that you get through the, the obvious and, and to that kind of, brutal simplicity or kind of radical simplicity, if you like, um, that, that, that is the essence of where you're at. And if you get to that point, they'll last you for, for the next 50 years of your life, you know, because you've answered it once and for all, I think. No, I love that. And especially the 
N ways means. I mean, such a great yeah. framework you're working off of. It, it's so obvious that, that you've been able to distill these things down to their essence. And there's a lot of years that went into that. But I'm wondering, how did you first become interested just in, in high performance and leadership overall? Uh, step by step, I think. I think, <laughs> you know, I, I started in advertising. Um, advertising is a great game. And it's fun creatively. It's like the front line of business very entrepreneurial it's it's you're making very expensive jokes um if you like you know you know very beautifully lit jokes um uh but it's the tale of the dog you know it, it's it's interesting and it's fantastic but it's it's right down a kind of you know or you know it's right at the back of the beast if you like and i got increasingly interested in the strategic side of it it's like well how do you shift an organization how do you align behind some sort of sense of purpose? Um, and at the same time as I was um, working in, in agencies and then in consultancies, uh, I was writing books. And the first book I did was with the Australian Rugby League team uh, quite a number of years ago. I won't date myself too much. But, but you know, they are an extraordinary outfit with an extraordinary leader who's just passed, actually, um, called Bobby Fulton, known as Bozo. And he was an extraordinary man. Um, and I became really interested, I think, in uh, his view of the world and how he understood the human dynamic of achieving continued high performance, both personally and, and in terms of a group. Um, and there's a, there's, a, there's a story I'll tell. The first time I, I was on the bus, the team coach, they just lost. So I joined the team kind of slightly late during this Ashes tour. Um, Australia were touring in the United Kingdom. And I joined slightly late. So I joined them just after they'd lost the first test, the first big game. Uh, and I was sitting up the front. I can't use the language, I think. But um, I was sitting up the front in the cheap seats, right at the front of the bus. And the players were coming in behind. And most of them kind of ignore me. But one guy, um, a guy called Steve Roach, Blocker Roach, looked a huge man, uh, a prop looked me up and down and kind of went, you know, who the is this? I'm trying not to use the language. No, feel free. Yeah, if you, if you need very to, Australian. go ahead. And and um, uh, and I just went, oh, well, this has started well, you know. <laughs> and sitting there in this little 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 bath of humility, you know, sweat and humiliation, right up the front, having failed at the first hurdle. Um, we got on the road and a few minutes later, there was a tap on my shoulder and it was Bobby Fulton, the coach. Uh, and he just sort of, you know, said, you know, jump up, jump up, land. And he presented me with a team tie uh, and gave me a handshake. And obviously everybody saw it. And from that moment on, I was part of the crew. And it was a very, very simple way of leading uh, that was very human, that was very emotionally astute, uh, that said he's one of us, very symbolic, um, and he's one of us, and you know leave him, you know don't mess with him, he's with us. And uh, over the course of the next month, there were a number of conversations I, I managed to have uh, with with Bobby Fulton um, around aspects that I just found I was really interested in about you know how human beings perform at their best. Uh, how how leaders can form groups and galvanize 
He, he told me another story. He used to do a, a sweepstake with himself on what the score would be based on the, the kind of the energetic body language of the players as they ran onto the field on both sides. And he, he was pretty accurate. He wasn't always right, but he was pretty accurate because he could kind of tell by the dynamics, the way they connected, the, the, the crackle of energy, um, the way they communicated, um, the, 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 the relative energy between the two sides. Uh, and, and I thought, well, there's, there's, a, a, there's a man who's kind of transcended looking at the individual to, to kind of patterns, if you like and dynamics. And I thought that was fascinating. I found that fascinating. And then I moved career wise, I moved into brand consultancy, really looking at identity for large organizations. Who are we? Why, why does it matter? And of course, they're, they're kind of small as spiritual aspects, you know, values, vision, purpose, iconic brands, symbolic ritual, all of these things. And, and, uh, I, I was it used to be introduced as a brand consultant at, at at a party, say, and somebody would would go, "What a brain consultant!" And I'd say, "No, a brand consultant." But there was something in the idea of a, a brain consultant that was actually very true about that occupation. It's really how do people think? How do people respond? How do people react to the framing of a narrative? To the to the to the to the co-creation of a story. Um, and and I think at heart I'm a storyteller, kind of an applied storyteller, and I I found that fascinating, and I found also it was it was relevant and in some ways revolutionary in some of the environments I was able to to do this work in because you know if we have the right story, um, one of the phrases I use is you know the story you tell becomes the story that other people tell about you. Mm-hmm. If you can really understand, you know, in programming terms, it's it's garbage in, garbage out, and the opposite. If you're putting a quality story in at the front end for you as an individual, any organism, um, for you as an, an individual or for any team or for any organization, if you get that story right, people will live into that story. They will align around that story. And that story becomes true more often than not. And, uh, and so that's really what I try to do is, is try to, in my books, try to, you know, give people access to a more powerful story to live by, to perform by. Uh, and with teams, really, it's, it's kind of, well, what's your particular story? Why this team? Why this group? Why now? And if you can ask those questions, and a lot of the time we get not destructive, but we get focused on our day job, you know, passing and tackling and making phone calls or whatever that happens to me, making podcasts, whatever that is, the technical side of it. But we forget to reflect and we forget how powerful um, reflection is in terms of learning and reframing our experience. Um, and if you're able to reflect and reevaluate and reframe and kind of reflect and remind yourself of, of why it matters, you know, that's revolutionary. You know, that really changes hearts and minds and lives, I think. And, and so that's the kind of impact I hope to make in any kind of piece of work that I do. Yeah, no, you talk about the impact you make. A minute ago, you were mentioning Bobby Fulton. He brought to light for you a lot of these patterns. I mean, your work for me, I come from that elite sports background and then transition in, into, into business and just the things you just hit on, uh, stories, values, um, all of these little things around rituals, they're, they're just so brought to light by the work you do. And it was like, whoa, yeah, what was 
performed an elite sport is also so applicable here in business. Something you bring up a second ago that I really want to dive a little bit deeper on, you, you talk about this reflection process. And I know a lot of the people, because I get questions like this all the time, hey, we're just go, 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 go every single day. How do we build in that time or what should that time look like when I'm zooming out and being able to reflect on these bigger pictures? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. We're just go, 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 go all the time. Well, isn't it your choice? Hmm. You know, take, take back time. Yeah. Take some control of your own time. You know, it's not a given that you're go, go, go all the time, that you don't have time to do the really important stuff. There's the urgent and there's the important. You know, obviously, you know, I, I think that, again, as Stephen Covey, there's the urgent and there's the important. The go, go, go is the urgent stuff. The important stuff is to, is to be going in the go, go, go in the right direction. Um, so if, if it's not in the diary, it's not real. If you don't put time against it, forget it. You know, um, another another saying, you know, I, I, I can't remember who it was saying something like, you know, normally I meditate for an hour, but if I'm really busy, I meditate for two hours. You know, you know, the, the more hectic it is, the more important some of that, you know, know thyself stuff is. And it's the, you know, the life unexamined, I think it's Socrates, you know, is the life not worth living? You know, you've you got to take time. You've got to slow it down to speed up, I think. Um, and in the end, I think the symptom of it's go, go, go around here becomes one of the problems. We don't have time to do the important stuff. And that can be a cultural issue. Now, you know, it doesn't necessarily take hours out of your – you've probably spent more time chatting after lunch than this takes, you know, you know, we're not talking massive amount of time, but we're talking, um, you know, doing it at the right time and then kind of t chipping away at it, just rebooting, coming back to base sometimes, both personally and, and within a group. So, you know, you might just, it's classic New Year's resolution, you know, taking that time to, to take some quiet time, that originally what it was all about. You know, what am I, where am I at? You know, where do I want to go? What's in my way? Um, what's really important? What are my strengths? What do I need to work on? Uh, how can I get better today? You know, they're really important questions. And if you're not putting time into that, then you're just really on autopilot, I think. And, and that go, 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 kind of, I don't have time for all of this stuff, is indicative of being an autopilot. You're not going to get better, and you're probably not going to see the disaster that's looming down the highway coming right at you because you're just too busy. And, and so I that, that would be my challenge for that kind of narrative uh, around, you know, you know, it's go, 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 I don't have time for this. It's like, well, if, if it's go, 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 you've got to make time for this. James, I love that. Yeah, when we're doing that, just the blinders are on. We're, we're missing the big picture things. You mentioned that slowing down. I love the, the Navy, Navy SEAL sniper saying, slow is smooth, smooth is fast. I have to remind myself smooth of that sometimes. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. I, I know the, the All Blacks rugby team is one of the most elite and legendary teams of all time. But for you personally, what was it about them specifically that you wanted to get so entrenched with them that you were going to take the years it takes to, to write a book and go all in on that? Well, I'm a Kiwi. I'm a New Zealander. The, the All Blacks are like the epitome of – they're the gods, the pantheon of 
the gods. You know, it's like growing up in New York and it's either the Yankees or the Mets. But if you're a Yankees fan, they're, they're, it's the Pantheon, I think. You know, the so they're, they're the local heroes. And I think on that level, you know, well, why wouldn't I, I think? Um, on a more kind of practical level, um, the, the they are certainly up there, but probably the most successful sporting unit of all time in terms of sustainable success. They, they, they have a, a win ratio of around about 78% over 125 years. One of their chief competitors, uh, Wales, one of the great rugby nations, hasn't beaten them since 1953. You know, they've won three World Cups. They've, they've been team of, the, team of the year, team of the decade, team of the century within their sport. It's an extraordinarily competitive sport. Um, you know, a minor sport, but one of those, still one of the world's big sports. I think the Rugby World Cup, I think, is the third biggest sport in terms of television audience in the world. So we're not talking a minor sport, really. Extraordinarily competitive, and yet they've remained extraordinarily dominant for well over a century. Um, give or take, you know, some, some patchy periods. But, but so the question has got to be, how do they do it? How does a small Pacific Island nation take, you know, of, of when I was living in New Zealand, I, I now live in London, of three and a half million people, it's now about five million people, take on the rest of the world and win and win comprehensively over and over and over again. What's all that about? Um, so I was intrigued from that, from a, from a, you know, just a success story point of view and, and what's that secret source? Um, and also as a case study, because what I found the closer I got to the team and, and understanding the dynamic is that they really reflected a lot of what's happening in the broader world. Um, it was a, a shifting sort of zeitgeist, if you like. like. There was the, uh, the, the most recent um, group really was the millennial generation coming on through. There's enhanced professionalism, a lot more demands uh, in terms of uh, you know, commercial commitment, media commitment, uh, social media was much more of an issue. You know, all of these things were kind of mixing into the mix, um, all of which are, you know, quite relevant, um, I think, for now. You know, the demand for a flatter uh, leadership structure, for a more coaching, facilitative style, all of these things that I think the world demands right now. Um, so all of those factors combined to make it, for me, kind of the ideal um, case study, I guess, around high performance. And, you know, there are a lot of factors behind their success. It's a, it's a small country, New Zealand, but it's not too small. It's still got enough kind of player power, if you like, or, or, or potential player and talent uh, to feed into the sort of the feeder network uh, to produce outstanding athletes. Um, it's a, it's a, there isn't a club versus country issue uh, in New Zealand, what's good for the All Blacks is good for the game. What's good for the game is good for the All Blacks. There's a real sense of organisational alignment. They focus very well on on competitions and coaching. There's a clear pathway to the top and a consistent kind of coaching methodology that works from grassroots all the way to the top. But but is that enough? And 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 I, I would argue that gets you there, but it doesn't keep you there necessarily so so what's that extra part and for me that's really around the culture the narrative that ethos what it means um the, the the values the vision the purpose the standards and expectations and the way they manage that as a kind of psychological space if you like um 
So I, I thought that combination of all of those um, and the fact that, you know, I'm a Kiwi and I, I, I love my team, uh, you, you know, I was prepared to put a few years of my life down on that particular one. Yeah, well, I mean, when you're looking at a, a team, an organization to study, there's probably no better team than that. I love that. I, I want to dive a lot in, into some of the details you pulled out, but I would love to know going into this, was there something that became apparent that just going in was just not even on your radar that you thought or couldn't have thought of that just helps and amplifies yeah. elite culture? Um, well, I, 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 I've probably got two answers for that. One, the first one, and, and this is true, this is true as true of, say, a special force outfit. You mentioned the SEALs. I've had an opportunity to work with those guys on both coasts quite a lot. Um, and SF here in the UK and, and, and various teams, as, as tough as they are on the outside, they're fueled by love. You know, they're fueled by genuine human connection. You know, they, they relatedness, I think, is maybe a better way of putting it. You know, hum, deep human bonds. You know, they're good human beings who take care of each other. Now, I think that's something in business. We think we have to be rough and tough and suited and booted and professional all the time. But, but that's a fragility, really. That's a human fragility a lot of the time. The, the leaders, the organizations that really thrive tend to be very human in a lot of ways. And, and that's a strength. You know, vulnerability is a strength. Humanity is a strength. Genuine human connection is a strength. You know, love, people run into burning buildings for love. You know, they choose careers that don't pay them as much for love. They choose cultures that they just like for love. You know, they, they love their musicians. They love the movie. You, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's a driving force in human behavior. And it's one that I think has almost been systemized out of the sort of um, management Bibles until relatively recently, the, the human factor. But, you know, Napoleon said that the moral to the physical, the human to the kind of asset, is, is as three to one. It's a force multiplier, what the military call a force multiplier. Because if you get a determined group of committed, connected individuals who have real clarity of purpose and would die for each other, not much is going to stop that. Not much is going to stop that. In the military, they say, you know, you don't die for, you don't fight for queen and country or, you know, for, for the flag. You know, you fight for the for the person in the foxhole beside you, and so those deeply. So you know, to your question, the the the, uh, I, you know, I think the thing that I really got going into that team was that 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 sort of empowered, self learning, self referential, self um, uh, regulating, highly connected group that's really fueled by love of each other and love of their purpose kind of small L love. I'm not, I'm not going to get too soppy and I'm, but, but it's brotherhood, you know, the band of brothers, he who sheds his blood with me today will be my brother. Shakespeare, you know, um, is, is really fundamental to, to human dynamics. And a lot of things conspire against that too much coaching, you know, too, too much micromanagement, you know, you know, um, people have learned the leadership from the full metal jacket school of leadership. It's all about yelling and abuse yeah. and hectoring. You know, all of those things, which it, it should be obvious, don't work. They don't work in families. Yeah. Why would they work, you know, 
in the office. Well, not that we have offices, right? right that might, well, but but you know, why would they work in any professional group? Why would a lack of concern and consideration and care work to bring out the best in people? It doesn't. It creates fear. It creates risk averseness. It creates people typing up their CVs and looking elsewhere. It means people don't want to turn up and they want to leave early. They're certainly not going to order out pizzas and help their mates. So how can so the the question for me then when you take this and I'll, I'll come back to your main question in a moment is how do you how do you take that and transplant that kind of attitude into organisations on a team basis because we know that that psychologically safe environments that are that that if we look at self determination that that promote mastery or competence. You know, people want to be better at the thing they want to be better at. Autonomy, no one wants to be micromanaged. And relatedness, we want to do, you know, stuff we love with people we at least like. You know, if, if we know that that that's, uncovers intrinsic motivation, why would you not be – that is a high-performance environment. Um, that is a high-performance environment. It's about competence. We, we get better every day. It's about autonomy. We're all leaders, leadership at every level. You know, let me learn. Let me let me figure out the how, and we're deeply connected with it, with each other, and for a cause that gives our life meaning. Um, that's kind of what you want. That's what the All Blacks do. It's what Special Forces do. It's what the best organisations do, and yet most people don't do it. You know why? Because they think that you need to be professional, and it's about metrics, and it's about you know it's 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 all measurable and it is measurable too but but it and it's about putting on a suit it's about putting your game face on when you turn up for work it's not about being yourself and i think that's a disaster for the world and i think it's a disaster for most small teams because you don't get the best out of your people in those environments people flourish uh, in the kind of environment i've talked about they play to the best of their ability and when there's fair and factionalization and politics and all of all of that stuff and and real risk people play in themselves you know they 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 play they're on the back foot not the front foot so as a leader if you really want to lead a great team or create a great organization why are you creating an environment that minimizes your human potential you know um and often it's a lack of awareness and a lack of skill um but i'm really interested in creating a you know, a framework, if you like, um, and certainly getting them a message out that that is what excellence really looks like. So, so I think that's probably the first thing that I could observe coming into a team. Um, the, the second thing I just wanted to answer, answer that question, uh, I think it's encapsulated in the opening story of, of legacy. And it, it's, it's the sweep the shed story. Um, that, that after, after the first test match, First international match I, I had a chance to observe uh, with the team. Um, there was a team talk, you know, a, a reflective session and after action review kind of thing. Um, and then somebody clapped their hands and said, okay, lads, it's time to go. And rather than the players just heading for the bus for the coach, they grabbed long handled brooms led by the senior players and started tidying up after themselves, taking care of business. You know, it's a brilliant metaphor for a legacy, leave the world in a better place than you found it. But it's really about living values out loud. Um, 
particularly one of the cardinal values within that environment and most high-performing environments, I think all high-performing environments, which is about humility. Mm. You know, don't get ahead of yourself. The enemy of high performance is entitlement, is arrogance, is ego, really. You know, I think Greg Popovich from the San Antonio Spurs, I've never spoken to him, but he uh, is quoted as saying he looks for for players when selection, players who have gotten over themselves. Mm. It's not about them. It's about the team. That team first philosophy. The the Phil Jackson talked to Michael Jordan about swapping the 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 me for the we, you know. And if Jordan did that, he'd walk away with as many championship rings as he wanted. He had MVP rings, I think, many championship rings as he wanted, and he walked away with six. Jackson's got how many now? I don't know. 15? I think 11, 15. I, 11, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I think, or thirteen. I'm, I, I've lost count. You know, that's the point. There's too many to count, too, too many for his fingers. Anyway, he can't wear them all. He's got to wear toe rings now because he's been so successful with a philosophy that's fundamentally about um, a, a team-first philosophy. It's fundamentally about the, what's good for the team is good by me. Yeah, what um, was Phil Jackson's, uh, what was it, one breath, one mind, speaking to... Absolutely. You know, and, and he, he he used the kind of the, the zen... The zen meditative come back to the breath and come back to the moment and come back to each other uh, kind of way of looking at it. it and, and I don't think that's a, I don't think it's, it's a, it's a surprise or a coincidence that the all blacks and their embracing of kind of an indigenous wisdom, if you like ancient wisdom and Phil Jackson and there's some ancient, ancient wisdom in that, um, you know, these aren't new concepts. These are the oldest concepts of them all. You know, you come back to the moment, you come back to the breath, you connect with each other. I think there's something hardwired in us anthropologically that what does it take to go out and beat the saber-toothed tiger or or the Neanderthals, you know, in the valley? Well, you know, you need a bit of humility. You need to be there for the team. If somebody thinks, if the team wants to go that way and you want to go in the other direction, you're risking your own life, but you're also risking the life of your mates, of the group. So I think those values are core values. And, you know, I've had an opportunity to go into a wide variety of, of, of uh, high-performance environments. And the good ones, the values are fundamentally the same. I was speaking uh, uh, the other day and we, we ended up talking about, I've done some work with the, with the Gurkhas, the Nepali contingent part of the British Army, the, the sort of um, attached to the British Army, but they're from Nepal. So a very, very different culture, Hindu warrior culture, really. A very different culture from the, the Maori, the New Zealand kind of basis uh, of the All Blacks. Um, humility, excellent respect and loyalty. Um, they call it kaida. It's really legacy. It's the same thing in a different suit. Um, the, the SAS, the British SAS, they talk about a relentless pursuit of excellence, kind of personal discipline in every detail, what they call rank but no class, uh, humility and a sense of humor. So there's the humility word again. Uh, rank but no class is that everybody is a leader, you know, create a, an, an even playing field for people. If you're in a team, your contribution is just as important as the star and vice versa. Um, personal discipline, ownership and accountability, it's on me. It's a lovely line out of Special Forces, um, one of the founders of one of the British units said, you know, he's not looking for people with discipline. He's looking for people with self-discipline, hmm. you know, take it on, own it. 
and the relentless pursuit of excellence. You know, you're going to have excellence at your core. You want to be the best that you can be. Um, that is that is the archetypal. You know, that is the 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 bones, the bare bones of any great high performance culture. I think. And there are variations, and it's told in a different way. But actually, if you don't have those elements in place, something's going to fall apart. If you're not aiming for excellence, you're not going to achieve it. If, if people aren't taking ownership and responsibility, extreme ownership, the CEOs talk about, um, who owns the, the job? Well, if slippage occurs. If, if, if your most junior member has a brilliant idea and no one's listening, right, you know, rank but no class. You want to create an environment in which people have voice and a sense of belonging. Um, and hum humanity, humility and a sense of humor. You want to connect as genuine human beings and not let your ego and arrogance and entitlement get in the way. It's pretty much it, I think. Um, so th this isn't, you know, brain surgery, brain consulting, <laughs> You know, this is, these are some fundamentals that have been passed down as a legacy, really, from generation to generation. And I think another phrase turns up within the All Blacks environment, just because it's common sense doesn't mean it's common practice. Hmm. You know, how do you, fight, how do you get back to good old-fashioned common sense? You know, but applied for now. You know, and it's the application and the execution of it that I think um, that's the framework. And then it's like living those values and living those principles that becomes the challenge. Yeah, James, you're you're 100% speaking my language. It's, it's crazy to think a, a lot of the companies, organizations, teams, they're, they're being run with that archaic method that when you flip it on your head and you kind of see what you just laid out, yeah, it, it's pretty clear the best performing teams all are, are basically living the, these different ways and these different frameworks. W one of the things I'm really intrigued about is you were mentioning we don't want to be micromanaging. We really want to develop learning organizations, learning cultures where people are just driven to continue to improve. How do we do that without being too hands-on and allowing that mm -hmm. autonomy of our people to really come out? Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that the, the challenges that face faces large organizations, you know, that people talk about, you know, because the, the key word is probably empowerment here, you know, which is pink and fluffy and doesn't really mean anything to anybody. You know, really. And I think it doesn't mean anything to anybody because there's no real process to achieve that. Um, you know, people talk about an empowerment culture. What does that look like? How is that rewarded? You know, in a, in a, in a, in a diary, where does it sit? What happens in that? You know, how do we cultivate leaders and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I think there's a methodology that's missing. You know, I think that's really problematic for organizations because you need some sort of unified approach. And if that's not articulated, um, that can be very difficult to achieve in a large organization. Um, I, I sort of have two aspects of, of, to kind of try to address. And it, it's something I'm trying to address in the work I'm doing now is thinking, well, what kind of process could be put into place to achieve that? How do you create that learning environment? What is the role of a leader? Uh, and so on. And I, I kind of see the role that, that kind of coach, I call it the coach CEO um, that creates an environment that, that uses the sort of best knowledge, if you like, from high performing environments and kind of adapts it um, for, for teams of teams. Because of course, organizations aren't a monolith. They're, they're made up of, and, and Stan McChrystal's phrase, uh, team of teams, you know, it's a team of teams. Um, 
And culture is very mimetic. It, it, it's contagious. It's like a virus. If, if sort of another word of the moment, but, um, but if one group is doing great things, people will look to see what that group is doing. And so actually you can affect quite significant culture change with an organization, one team at a time. You create centers of excellence. You create your kind of A team and then you create that kind of culture and then you prove within the organization that that's how we roll now. And this is why, because you see their sales numbers are huge or they're, or they're, or whatever it is. Um, and so you model internally, you model the kind of the behavior that you want on a sort of cellular level and, and try to get to that tipping point where it becomes kind of viral, if you like. And, and you create heroes and you reward and recognize and you tell that story and, and you communicate and connect around that kind of thing. Um, the, the other thing I think is worth looking at is, is um, the concept of mission command, which is a military concept. And I talk about it a bit in, in Legacy and there have been uh, some fantastic books written about its uh, applicability. There's an author called Bungay. Um, worth Googling um, if you're interested, if, if your listeners are interested. But um, in, in Napoleonic times, Napoleon had a very agile workforce. Um, and, and it was agile because it was based on, on the different kind of core corps. Sometimes it said, um, um, so the leadership decisions were really in the hands of the generals. And then in turn were in the hands of their kind of subordinates so they had what what are now called thinking soldiers. They could make decisions on the ground, you know. Um, they could show leadership and initiative on the ground. Um, the strategic corporal, it also gets called. Now, Napoleon was an extraordinary leader. He managed to marshal huge resources. He invented conscription, really. So he had mass, but he also had agility. Um, he came up against the Prussians, the, the austro um, the, 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 the Prussian Empire, um, who were very hierarchical, very command and control. You had to ride your horse to the top of the hill to get your next orders. It was very slow. It was very nepotistic. Um, I think there were like 13-year-old generals, you know, and they got slaughtered, literally and figuratively slaughtered uh, at a battle called Yenna. Um, and that was the end of the empire. That was the end of the old days, the ancient regime. Um, and they, it became what's now called Germany. And they started the German Military Academy, and there was people by people like Clausewitz um, and also a guy called von Molke. And von Molke uh, and a, a group developed um, a kind of a system, a doctrine, which was sort of mission-type tactics. It's now known as Mission Command. And Mission Command is, is the way I break it down, is um, you've got to select the right people, you need to, the Navy SEALs call them expert learners, people who are able to, able, capable of, of, of getting better. That growth mindset is fundamental. You know, it's the way you can do it in the future, not the way we always have done it. Um, you, need to, um, uh, you need to train them right. They need to have the capability. Um, you know, they need to be fit for purpose. They need to be skilled in the right way. Uh, you need to resource them right. They need to have the capacity um, because if you don't have the capacity, you know, you don't have time, you know, to, to do it um, or inclination to do it. 
and then and then you need to communicate in a certain way for a particular from a for a particular reason and that communication is um uh called the commander's intent you paint a vivid picture of what of where you're going and and why it matters they call it in order to so we need you to cross that river in order to get the tanks to the other side uh and then the commander has to get out of the way and empower the how of that to the next level down and so on. Um, and what that does, as I call it in, in legacy, I call that pass the ball. It's handing responsibility over. It's passing the level of responsibility on. So everybody has a, has a hand in the solution, feels that level of, of ownership and autonomy. So what that develops is it develops agility because the people facing that river are best placed to figure out how to do it. And if the river happens to be dry at a particular place, well, you don't have to build a bridge. You just drive your tanks over there because you know the why. You know what you're trying to achieve. Um, but it, what it also does is that it gives people real-world experience of leadership. And so they grow into that position. They, the, more risk, the more weight we take, the more we grow. It's like going to the gym, you know, your resistance training. You're loaded up. You've got to push back harder. You grow as as leaders, as human beings. Um, uh, you are personally invested in the solution, so that your level of ownership and engagement and commitment to making it work is is immeasurably more than if you've just been told how what to do and how to do it. Um, and then the management side of it, if you like, um, is called the directed telescope. It's you know you take snapshots. You just check in. You just make sure things are going in the direction they should. And then you act really as a, as a resource, as a coach, as a facilitator in order to make sure that, hey, you know, what's going on is, is working, but also that you're able to provide the next level of what's, of what's needed to go to the next level. Now, it's a fantastic model. It's such a fantastic model that it's now really the key model in the US military and the UK military, Australia, Canada, uh, New Zealand, um, uh, and, and a bunch of others, um, because it works, because it's a kind of pragmatic approach to empowerment. And I think that's something that, that business is missing, because you have this conversation and, and people just go, uh-huh, I'm busy, 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 yeah. right? There isn't a framework. And without a framework and without that framework being aligned from top to bottom, you've got no chance. So I think it's a combination of a number of factors, that team of teams focusing on small teams and creating kind of a cultural contagion, a viral effect. But I also think that larger organizations need to really look at what their leadership philosophy is um, and, and, uh, and the impact of that philosophy in creating an environment that, that acts as a force multiplier for, for their human capital, if you like, that allows people to be the best they can be. I call that a growth company. They grow their people and they grow from within. Uh, and the score, uh, uh, Bill Walsh from the San Francisco 49ers has a great line. He says, you know, the score will take care of itself. Yeah. You know, if you're just focusing on the results at the expense of your culture and your people, you'll probably lose your people and you'll probably lose your results. If you focus on your people and growing them and creating the right environment for them to excel and you attract and retain talent and the war for talent, it's never been more important 
you know, in a, in a, in a generation of, of millennials and post-millennials who have a lot of choice and a lot of transparency about what, what they might do and are, tend to be quite purpose-driven um, as, a, as a generation. Um, they want to do meaningful work, you know, with people who mean something to them. If you're not providing that, that's not a competitive advantage. You know, you want that competitive advantage. Culture is a competitive advantage, a significant competitive advantage. Um, so I think many organizations are missing a trick and, um, and it's their own complexity, uh, and their own lack of humanity, I think that will eventually and often counts against them in that kind of situation. Yeah. I I love the point around the empowerment. I mean, you brought it up at the beginning of this, this conversation around the co-creation element and even, even in the book legacy, I forget which specific coach implemented this, but he was saying, I mean, he's there, you're coaching Monday, Tuesday, and then by Saturday, the, the team's running itself. They're giving it away. Yep. There was a, a military commander I met in Afghanistan who, who said that the courage of leadership is the courage to let go. Mm. And I think that's very true. And I, and I think exactly. Um, Graham Henry, I think, is the, co- is the coach you mentioned. You know, he was quite proud of his team talks, you know, on the Friday before they went out, you know, on the Saturday. And the, the then captain came up to him and said, are you, are that, are, you know, words to the effect of, are those team talks for you or are they for us? Because it seems like it's for you, really. And he realized that actually by Friday, if his team wasn't leading itself, uh, then he had a problem. Um, and so creating the environment in which small groups can self-lead is where you get the empowerment, the engagement, the agility, you know, the ability to make decisions and back themselves. Um, uh, and, and really, I think that's what you want. You want that small team environment that is, is just going for it, cracking on, making decisions, playing, playing the territory as it lands, playing what they see in front of them in sporting terms. Uh, and that's as true for a sales team, as for a maintenance team, you know, as for a group of, 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 of a C-suite for an executive board, you want that level of enterprise and initiative and, and ownership and, and uh, collective distributed leadership, if you like, collective responsibility. I mean, that really is the epitome of what makes a great team. And there are no exceptions. You know, you don't really get great teams that are, that are ripping each other to shreds, that aren't working together, are siloed, that don't feel safe to speak up when it's important to speak up. You know, you know, just because it's common sense doesn't mean it's common practice. And it's not always easy to achieve it because there's always fiefdoms and agendas and structural issues and resentments and all of that stuff. So I'm not, I'm not naively saying, well, just change the way you do things. But absolutely, if you want to create that, that um, high-performance organization, that growth organization, you know, start on that cellular level, I think, and and have a, a, a common framework and understanding of what you're trying to do and create that context. And if you can do that, you've at least begun a journey in the right direction. No, absolutely. What was that line, James, you said around leadership is, is about letting go? What was that specifically? Oh, oh, the courage of leadership is the courage to let go. Oh, I absolutely love uh, that. Yeah. That yeah, makes- I, th- I think so too. And, you know, one thing that's misunderstood, I think, a lot about military organizations is that they're, they're seen as being command and control. But there's another um, line, which is that, that if you have to give an order, you've already lost. 
you know, and and it's about influence, not power. Leadership is about influence and inspiration. It's not about power. It's not about hierarchy. Well, it's very rarely about hierarchy. You know, if you're barking orders, people don't stick around for that. And they certainly, there's a, there's a lovely Reddit, um, subreddit, you know, um, thread uh, called Malicious Compliance. And it's like, uh, it, and I, I, you know, I've, I've kind of enjoyed some of the stories there because it's usually to do with a manager with a boss who sort of said, no, you do it this way. And they say, all right, all right. I'll, you know, a, a lot of the time it's kind of IT professionals. So, all right, I'll do it that way. And, you know, six weeks later, you know, it's a total disaster. And it's like, you told me, you know, malicious compliance. Um, whereas, how do you reckon we should do it? Being a resource for the people who actually have to do it and probably know that there's going to be a programming problem in six weeks' time, course that's the way to lead of course it is no one knows everything but collectively that hive mind and and leaders who are able to shape that response much much more effective that's that's proper leadership really it's about gathering people up and creating a coalition of the willing and creating the clarity and that and that kind of emotional heart and kind of strategic brain that sets everyone off in the same direction and then allowing themselves to bring their best selves to it. I mean, that's got to be the best way to work. And it's extraordinary how rarely that happened or not how rarely it does happen a lot because we're, you know, instinctively, you know, we tend to be, you know, if, if you're a good parent, I think you can be a good leader and a good leader, a good parent often because, um, because we're all kind of, the inner child anyway, um, sort of we want recognition, we want self-expression, we want meaning, we want relatedness, we want all the stuff we wanted when we were 10 years old. Yeah. So so if you can create that environment um, in which people can willingly contribute, you know, for me, that's the definition of good leadership. Yeah, James, I'm hoping some of the leaders listening today that maybe aren't using some of these frameworks, these styles are really stepping back and saying, oh, wow, I, I need to revisit how I'm going about how how these organizations are put together and how they're run. One one of the things that you've written about, and it's a philosophy I, I use largely when I when I was coaching, um, and you still use it today, and that's the aggregation of marginal gains, where you're not trying to do one thing a hundred percent better. Let's do a hundred things one percent better. I would love to just talk about this with you for a minute because I know you've got some great insights here. Yeah, I mean, I I think you know it can be very easy to. To play that high-level game, that purposeful, visionary, commander's intent, da da da. But of course, real change happens bit by bit, step by step. So, what is the mindset that you that's required within an organisation? What's the collective mindset, the individual and collective mindset? And and that is, I think, best expressed by that idea of marginal gains. Um, the San Antonio Spurs call it pounding the rock. Um, it's sort of the, the stonecutter's creed. Um, you know, you take a piece of marble, take a hammer and, and a chisel and start chipping away. Nothing will happen. Um, 100 blow, 50 blows, 75 blows, 100th blow. It breaks on, I think the story is on the 101st blow, but it wasn't the 101st blow that did it. It was all the blows that led up to that. It was that continual application of small moments of pressure um, that leads to breakthrough results. Um 
And that's a truism. That's a truism in life. You know, if you want to get good at something, you need to do your 10,000 hours. You know, if you want to move anything, it, very few things move all at once. They move by that constant application of pressure. And the good news is that's something we can control. That becomes a decision that we make all day, every day. You know, do I, when I'm, when I'm cooking, do I, do I, to take a domestic example, when I'm cooking, do I um, let all the mess pile up? Or like a good cook, a good chef, do I put the ingredients back where they belong at every stage of the way? A small marginal gain, but the difference is about half an hour's worth of doing the dishes and cleaning up after the meal. But you've done it at the time. You know, if, if you're the boss of an organization and you walk past a crisp packet or some, you know, some rubbish on the floor and you don't pick it up, right, uh, neither will anyone else. But that small marginal gains gesture uh, will signal and the ripples go outwards. So the, 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 the devil is in the detail. You know, the small stuff matters. Um, those small incremental moments matter. Um, Sean Fitzpatrick, a former All Blacks captain, said, you know, excellence is modest improvement consistently done. And I love that line. I think it's a genius line that, that, that it's, it's the modest improvement. You don't have to do it all at once. In fact, you can't do it all at once. But the way we get better at something, the way we grow is by trying stuff out, experimenting, learning, doing it again, doing it again, doing it again. And, and, and it's that, um, and I, I, it's something that we can control on a human level. It's something that we can tr- control. We can go, do I walk past that pile of rubbish or do I pick it up? Um, the phrase I use came from one of the players that just champions do extra. Hmm. Um, uh, Brad Thorne's mantra, um, champions do extra. It's that little bit extra that you do all the time. You know, do you do an extra draft of a book? Do you follow up that email? You know, a lot of the time, communication, take communication. A lot of the time we send an email and we think we've communicated. No, we haven't. We just send an email. That's not communication. You know, in mission command in the military sense, they they have a have a have a, a phrase that's two up and two down. You know, do you know what's expected of you from two two ranks up, and do people down from you know what's what you expect two ranks down? And and in that way, you've completely joined an organisation. So, are you taking responsibility for the for the reception of your communication, not just for the delegation of it? Yeah. And that's an entirely different mindset an entirely different level of responsibility and of detail to, to what you're doing around here. It means you own that result. And, and that occurs metaphorically in a, in, or as a metaphor for what occurs in a, in a hundred different ways a day. And cumulatively, those hundred different ways of day multiplied by however many people in your team or your organization, that's, that's you know, if you've got 30 people in a, in a player group, for instance, and they do a hundred things a little bit extra a day, 3,000 micro-improvements that's happened in that environment. And that's massive. That's how teams grow. That's how teams who, who, who might be underfunded or, or underrated really can lift their game um, and take it to the next level. 
yeah, I feel like that's one of those those fundamental philosophies and principles. Once you see that in action, you can't ever forget that. And you try to implement it all the time. I love your example talking about like the little things picking up trash. Danny Meyer, uh, the great restaurateur, uh, started Shake Shack, everything like that. He's got this this excellent framework for hiring, and he he views it as does this person have an excellence reflex? Meaning, if, if he's have coffee with them, are they putting in their chair? Are they picking up their trash? Little things like that. The yep. truly great. I mean, they're, they're operating at the margins. They're doing all these little things. I absolutely love that. One, yeah, one thing yeah. I'm, I'm really intrigued about is we can study the sports teams. And one of the things they always do, they're training, right? Like they're constantly training within teams and organizations. How much of an effort should we put on the actual training of our people? Yeah. Well, I, I think there's two ways of looking at that as well. And, you know, I've been thinking about this quite a lot. Um, you know, one is every opportunity is a learning opportunity. Any meeting is a learning opportunity. If you take kind of a coach CEO philosophy that, and that everybody is a leader and so that everybody is really helping each other, there's another phrase from the San Antonio Spurs, how can I make my teammates better, which I love. Um, because I think what that implies is a number of things, you know, mutual contribution, but also somebody's got your back and somebody's looking out and it's like, hey, what about we try this? What about we do this? Now, that's not always easy to manage because people get defensive, um, you know, and, and all of that stuff. So, you know, you, you need to not make it a, you know, open season on self-improvement every meeting. But some of the principles of, of good coaching applied to a good meeting you know, do we know what our goals for this meeting are? Big goals and small goals. Do we do we have an accurate assessment of where we're at? Um, have we been through every option? It, it's, uh, there's the grow model. There's a, a coaching model, you know, and what will we actually do? Tend to be the key kind of beats of a good coaching session and a good meeting. So so it's possible to, to grow as we go, if you like. Um the other thing that I think is is woefully underutilized within a business environment is training and development and organizational development. You know, a lot of you know, very different, different states, different countries, different regions, kind of what's expected. But, um, you know, most people have a certain number of hours of kind of training they get as part of their package. They sort of have to do it and it's supposed to be a benefit. And a lot of the time a little bit of skills, a little bit of diversity and inclusion and, um, you know, a, a kind of a, a, an away day and, you know, all of that, maybe a public speaking or a presentation course, but it's never really joined up. And it's pretty ineffective, really. You know, a lot of the time it's like busy, 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 but I have to do this thing. So, you know, one of the challenges I would put out there for, for, um, for the sort of the entrepreneurs or the CEOs um, out there who have the sort of power to affect this is, is, you know, how are you using your training and development budget? A lot of money gets spent, huge amount of money gets spent. Does it really change the dial, shift the dial? Very rarely, I would say. And yet, it's a fantastic way to frame strategy, communicate strategy. It's a fantastic way to build culture and identity it's an, a, a, a really good way to create cohesion and connection. Um, so I think it's terribly underutilized within many businesses. Um, there isn't a joined up process. You, you mentioned the All Blacks having a kind of personal development sheets. You know, you go, well, 
if you take that idea from from from, from for for a larger organization, what is sort of the program of developing your people weekly? You know, could that be something that is wanted and it is in fact you know, and you have to be careful not to just load more work on. You know, it needs to integrate well. It needs to be real world, I think. But if it is, uh, you know, um, and you know, one of the things that I'm, I'm not pitching at the moment is that I'm I'm trying to develop, or I am developing, for a, as a follow up to to legacy, a book called the Legacy Workbook, which is what are the stages that we need to take people through to really help them evolve, and it, it it really begins with that kind of identity and that story, and then it looks really at what what is the optimum culture. And then finally, what does it take to lead in that kind of culture Um, and take people through? And we're looking at turning it into an app-based platform that that is able to unite and take people through a process. Because I believe very firmly that there is a huge opportunity um, within particularly larger, more disjointed or siloed organizations to kind of reassign training and development budget to something that really makes a business difference. You know that creates competitive advantage by unifying, uh, by upskilling, um, by reframing the story, by reflecting and reminding the the strategy and the expectations to deliver it, and forming the right behaviours in, in order to do it. And particularly right now, where there's a sort of a, a pivot to more remote learn, um, working, perhaps a, I, I hate the word, but a pivot towards a more digitalized future, digital future. You know. You, the fundamentals of what makes a great organization great are shifting and shifting very, very quickly. How can you use training and development to, to accelerate uh, that cultural shift and to refocus and repurpose organizations? I think is, you know, I, I feel that there is businesses often in the dark ages about that. And yet we have the tools and we have the time and we have the skills why aren't we using them in a way that is strategic rather than just sort of haphazard and 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 the obligatory training side of things? There'll be some organizational development people going, yeah, punching the air at the moment, you know, and some HR people punching the air because, you know, they're woefully underutilized, I think, from a strategic point of view. You know, that, that coaching culture, if you can really create that very, very strongly with an organization, that organization can benefit in the way that a sports team benefits yeah. you know, by harnessing the best of their own, their abilities. Yeah, you you know how obsessed I am with this and I, I cannot wait for the legacy workbook to implement with the companies I'm involved with. I, I can't help but I, I know everyone who's listening is like, wow, James is just an encyclopedia of wisdom and knowledge. You, you seem to have read so many different things, you appear to be a, a very voracious learner. I'm wondering, what are some of the books besides your own that you've just really found a lot of benefit from? Yeah, I mean, my wife would just say oh, I'm full of it, but, but that's another thing. They, they, um, they, they well, thank you for the compliment. Um, you know, I, I think you know, I, I can I'll, I'll name a few books, but I think you know, you got to follow follow your interests and follow your passions. It would be the first thing. It's it's like I you know I don't know where people are at. Um, I think that there's a combination of you know. I think often leadership books aren't the best place to learn about leadership. You know, um, they can be, and there's some inspiring leaders, but often you're looking at a framework that's worked somewhere else, and there's a sort of a creative, intuitive aspect, a judgment call around leadership that comes from 
that, that, that that's maybe best served by being well-rounded. You know, so I talk, you know, I talk about, you know, Marcus Aurelius and the Stoics as a fantastic leadership book because it's really about self-governance, you know, in leadership. You know, I'd, I'd look at, uh, there's a wonderful book called Thinking Fast and Slow, Daniel Kahneman, um, the, the Nobel Prize for Economics winning um, kind of behavioral psychologist who looks at the kind of the decision-making heuristics, how people work. And I think that's fantastic. Um, kind of nudge theory and sort of behavioral economics, I think, is, is really fantastic material for, 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 for leaders because, you know, it's, it's brain consulting. It's figuring out how people work. Um, you, know, you know, novels, understanding human dynamics, um, I think I think you know one of the one of the things I think about reading and about creativity and and entrepreneurialism and creativity are two sides of the same coin. Is it's the ability to put two contrasting ideas together that are never belong together, and the synthesis making it the dialectic kind of making it a third. You know, um, so the more widely you can read, I think uh, the more powerful kind of library or archive you've had of observations or insights that you're able to bring to a task. And, and so I think that would probably be my, be my kind of answer on it. it. It's like, you know, be voracious, but in many different directions. Um, don't read a book if you're not interested in it. If you're just thinking, well, this will make me a better leader, it probably won't. It'll just slow you down. Um, there's a whole library of brains out there, all contained within within book covers. And really, sometimes it's the um, Matthew Syed, a, a writer. Um, over here, I think he calls it ideas sex. It's when two ideas meet and they have some they have some offspring. Um, and you know, I think that would be my kind of philosophy of reading. It's like you know, somebody else said, you know, every book is a self help book. Um, you know, you know, how do we find, um, uh, how do we find ourselves through the journey of reading? And I think, you know, good leaders tend to be great readers and then great teachers of what they've learned. And I think, so, you know, go wide is sort of what I say. And don't necessarily think that just a leadership book is um, going to give you all the, all the, all the stuff you need. They're, they're part of the mix for sure. Um, uh and you know, I I tend to I tend to find a lot of inspiration in in you know um, in the sports side of things because I think there and in military side of things as well because I think they're sort of at the tip of the spear of immediate success or failure. You know, if you're in a if you're in a military environment and you make bad decisions, you die, and you and your mates die. Um, if you're in a World Cup and you make some bad decisions, you're no longer in the World Cup. So what that tends to do is focus the mind down to the stuff that really matters. And the stuff that really matters tends to be about accountability, humility, you know, relenting pursuit of excellence, um, the ability that everybody is sort of that, that distributed leadership side of things. Um, and you find the commonalities in that, uh, which which is kind of my sweet spot. What what I'm out there looking for. Sorry, long answer, but um, 
No, 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 James, this is just too good. Believe me, you, you know, we could just go on for hours here. Uh, we're going to wrap up here in a minute. I've got two more quick ones, then we'll, then we'll link the listeners up with you. I would love to sure. know, uh, just because the, the amount of time you've spent within sport, is there a team, it could be a current team right now, or it could be a team throughout history that you would have just loved being in the locker room every single day and really deeply getting to study like you did the All Blacks? Yeah, I, I mean, I think we talked about the Chicago Bulls and and clearly they were a phenomenal outfit in many ways, not just the raw talent, the Michael Jordan talent. Um, I think the ability to manage the, uh, manage egos, you know, it was by no means the um, an easy ride. You know, they had, a, they had a general manager who was not uh, immediately popular among the team. They managed to get, create schisms there. They had they had sort of the dead the the Rodman effect. He sort of turning up in Vegas. You had Michael Jordan, who who uh, I think you know people say you know, but isn't he pretty arrogant? I'd say, well, I, I think he's confident, but he has a humility to the task to get better every day, um, and and he set those standards very very high. Phil Jackson, I think, is an inspired leader and created an extraordinary space. Who listened to um, uh, listen to kind of assistant coaches to form a triangulated playing style. So it didn't matter where the ideas came from. Um, uh, if they worked, they had validity and, and so on. So I think there's some huge dynamics in that environment. And also, you know, they, they won two triples, you know, and the environment in a winning team I think would have been extraordinary I, I'm not a, even a massive basketball fan, but I, but I'm a very strong fan of that team. Um, the All Blacks, I, I you know some of the historic All Blacks teams. Um, I I would uh, have loved to be a fly on the wall in some of those. Um, the Liverpool football team in the in the 70s, the soccer in the 70s, again an extraordinary kind of outfit. Um, there are so many, there are so many. I'd, I I would love to have. Uh, uh, to to have sort of been a part of and had a chance to either contribute to or just observe would, would have been great. Yeah, I'm right there with you with the Bulls team. What about sitting down, long-form interview like this, anyone dead or alive, just not a family member or friend, who would you love to just have an evening getting to talk about anything with? Wow. Um, wow, that's, uh, you know, Marcus Aurelius would be pretty interesting. I think here's a guy who who ran the world he absolutely ran the world, you know, the known world at that point. He had his finger in every pie. One of the wealthiest guys in the world, one of the most powerful guys in the world, could have had anything or anybody brought to him on a plate or in a bed um, and done anything. But he chose to be a philosopher king. He chose to figure out really what the the deepest kind of meaning of life is, I guess, and and the practical principles for living. And I think that's quite extraordinary because, you know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, the phrase. Um, but he was a guy who was able to transcend that side of, of power uh, and go beyond it. And, and I, I think he'd be fascinating because, you know, really that we talked about interference and static and, you know, the noise or the signal and the noise earlier on. And here's a guy who had a lot of noise, um, but he tapped into that signal. And uh, so I think probably him, I would say, uh, totally off the top of my head. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm missing 
kind of Siddhartha Buddha, who I think would probably be an interesting chap. Not a lot of drinking going on, but it'd be a very interesting conversation. Um, um, uh, and and you know you know so many. I think I think some of the early days of sort of segregation in the states, and particularly some of the sports sportsmen and women who who overcame some of that and what that journey was like. I think is a fantastic again signal and and noise story in terms of how how can you put yourself in a position to perform excellently and absolutely when the whole world is against you. Um, Muhammad Ali, similar, you know, you know, an extraordinary character and, you know, so, so those humans of extraordinary character, I think, um, uh, really they should be the heroes. It shouldn't be movie stars and pop stars, some movie stars and some pop stars, but, but really those who overcame their circumstances. There's a lovely phrase, um, the Gurkhas use, which is, you know, do the right thing on a difficult day. And I think that's a lovely motto for, for life. You know, have you prepared yourself? Are you in a good position to do the right thing on a difficult day? You know, it's not about discipline. It's about self-discipline. It's about coming back to what really matters to you and trying to make that real in your life and live that. And, you know, I fail, everyone fails all the time. Um, but I'm really interested in, in the people who manage to to do that or at least, you know, manage to reboot themselves around that kind of deeper sense of purpose, I guess. Because, uh, you know, we're, we're only here for an extraordinarily fleeting time. You know, what we do with that time and how we are in that time, I think, becomes the example we set to the world. And I think if we live that way, we live well. And I, I've had many periods of my life where I haven't. I'm not preaching um, but I'm I'm curious about that kind of evolution of character and those kind of characters. James, I'm not sure if there's a better place to, to put a bow on, on this round one here. Uh, but, but one thing, your book Legacy really is one of those books that I gift a lot. So any listeners that are still listening, uh, I'll select a few of you. Just send me an email, info at whatgotyouthere.com. Uh, I'm going to be sending out a, a few copies of the book Legacy uh, for listeners. want to make sure everyone can stay connected with you, though, James. I, I know you have some other works that you're currently in the middle of. Where do you want mm-hmm. listeners staying connected with you? Anything they should be on the lookout for coming up here? Um, well, just in terms of, you know, uh, kerjames1 at me.com gets directly to me. LinkedIn is not a bad way because I'm very, you know, Google is your friend. Um, my uh, email is in the back of Legacy. So just go and buy Legacy, 15 Lessons in Leadership. There you go, my final sales pitch. Um, uh, so what was the other question? That's sort of how to find me. And I think, um, you know, I... Uh, I love to engage in the, you know, in the conversations around around leadership and around culture, and a lot of the work I do, particularly the high performing space around how can we take a team and really galvanize it. So I'm really interested in those kind of projects uh, and that kind of subject. So I'm a practitioner as well as a writer, um, and you know, I try to be quite open source if that makes sense. I really like to connect, and you know, I don't think there are secrets worth keeping. Uh, in this space. I think there's all secrets worth worth sharing. So I'm very open to the idea of sharing some of those secrets. Well, all that's going to be linked up in the show notes. But James Kerr, I cannot thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There. Sean, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. 
If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.